Well, we are looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, as a lot of you know. We started that last week, and it was written to a church that has a lot in common with us and a lot not in common with us. Uh, one of the things we share in common with them, and a big reason I chose this letter for us now, is that the world around us looks a lot like the world around this church in Corinth. Very wealthy, uh, falling into selfishness and individualism and immorality and all sorts of other things. We're seeing the same things around us that they were seeing around them. And so we get a lot of good advice here about how to avoid worldliness, how to stay pure and holy for the Lord as a church. Uh, what's really different, though, is there is a lot going on inside the Corinthian church that is not going on here in our church. Uh, for instance, I don't think we have any teachers who are denying the resurrection of Jesus or promoting open immorality in the church. The Corinthian church did have that. Uh, we do not see here the, the division over celebrity teachers that they saw in Corinth. Uh, we do not see the kind of problems with immorality that the church in Corinth saw. And so we're in many ways different from them. But there is one thing going on inside our church that was also going on inside their church. But good news, it's good. Uh, it is that God was doing an encouraging work among them as he has been doing an encouraging work among us. Uh, we have seen some pretty great things happen in the last year, probably more modest than what the Corinthians were seeing, but great nonetheless. Uh, we had a regular filling of the baptistry last year, many people coming to Christ. We're so thankful for that. I haven't seen that in a long time. Uh, church continues to grow in attendance, and we thank God for that in a time when you're probably reading that a lot of people are leaving church, and many churches are in decline, and the Lord sees fit to grow our church. We thank him for that. Uh, last year, he paid our debt off five years early, an incredible work of God. Uh, we've been working to train and prepare young leaders for leadership positions, and we're just starting to see them step into some of those positions. You'll see some more of that in the future, God willing. All these encouragements things happening. Well, there were kind of big spectacular versions of that in the Corinthian church too. Uh, they had a mass of people come to Christ. I mean, we saw some last year. They're seeing them come by the hundreds or maybe even by the thousands. It's hard to tell. Uh, we're seeing some gifted people begin to serve. Uh, they had a, a bench full of teachers that were really good speakers and who knew their stuff. And, and if you've ever been at a church that's having a lot of conversions, and man, somebody gets up in the pulpit and they bring the fire with their speaking ability, it's encouraging, right? It leaves, makes you leave fired up. It puts a temptation before people as well that they fell to and that we have to guard against. And that temptation is, is pride. Uh, when you see the Lord do a mighty work in your church, and then you see the giftedness of the people around you and you see their financial benefit or some other things like that, uh, it's possible to say in your heart, well, of course our church is growing. We do church better than those other churches do, right? Uh, of course the Lord paid our debt off. We've been faithful to pay the thing off over the years. Why would he not reward that? To, to give the credit to us and our hearts to become puffed up in pride at what he's doing. The Corinthian church fell to that temptation. It led to big egos, big heads among them, which eventually led to division, immorality, and many other things. Paul is going to correct them for that. But before doing that, he lays the foundation. He shows them why 
pride should have nothing to do with the Christian life. Why pride is essentially the opposite of the Christian faith in the first place. And that's the part of the letter we're going to read today, the foundation of why humility and thankfulness are such great marks of the Christian life. So if you're just joining us, uh, we're early in a series on the book of 1 Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth to call them back from the rampant immorality and self-centeredness of the world around them to a life of holiness and love under the lordship of Jesus. Uh, Right now we're in the early parts of that letter where we will see the foundation of why humility and thankfulness are so important in the Christian life. Let's read chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Those are the words of our God, and the Spirit uses them this morning to guard our hearts from taking pride in the gifts that he has given us, and to instead fill us with humility and thankfulness. Now, like I said last week, and like we saw last week, Uh, Paul loved to use the normal letter-writing conventions of his day to proclaim some truths that were going to become important later in his letter. It was normal to start with an opening like this and then a paragraph like that, much like we start our letters with a heading and end it with a signature. He liked to essentially hijack that to put some truth in there that was going to become important later. So it can be a fun game to just kind of pick through these early parts and say, okay, what are the little things he's saying and why is that going to become important later? Here he does something that is really not all that out of the ordinary. It was very normal to begin a letter with some positive, kind words of thankfulness. And it's certainly normal for a leader to thank God for the work that God is doing in the people and acknowledge that publicly. Nothing out of the ordinary here, but it's going to become very important when he is about to correct the Corinthians for their pride in these very things that he is acknowledging here are gifts from God. So before he gets into the correction for them, He acknowledges these good things, the spiritual gifts that God has given you, the many conversions that you are seeing in Corinth, that promise to keep you all the way to the end. Yeah, I'm going to call you back from pride in that later, but before we do that, oh, let's establish those things are good. Those things are gifts from God. So Paul points out then three gifts that God has given to the Corinthian church. And he's quick to emphasize that they are from God. Uh, The gift of many conversions that they have seen. Uh, The gift of many spiritual gifts and talented people among them. That's a gift from God. And the promise that he is going to keep them all the way to the end. That's a gift from God. So the main point is essentially that the best things about your church are gifts from God. 
And so we should be full of thankfulness for him, for the good things he's doing, not puffed up with pride over the things that God is doing in our church. So that's the main point. Best things about your church, if you're not from our church, best things about your church back home. If you're part of Calvary, the best things about Calvary are all gifts from God. Let's look to him in thankfulness. Before we spend some time unpacking that and what those gifts are and how God does that, uh, let, me, let me give you the, the foundational message that sits underneath this text. Uh, this text is written to a group of Christians, a church in Corinth. Uh, and so everything it has to say is for Christians, for the church. And so what I owe to you before we get deep into the message is to tell you how you can become a Christian or become part of God's church so that these things can be about you as they are about us. So let me proclaim to you first the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we'll get into the point of this text. Uh, Essentially, the message of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, God-made man, is Lord over all of the universe, and that we, his creatures, have all sinned against him and have stored up for ourselves wrath before the God of gods, that every one of us deserves to be condemned for our sins. And yet, this God came to earth anyway and came to earth not to condemn us, but to seek and save the lost and bring us back into a relationship with him, so much more than we deserve. Uh, He came and he lived in human flesh Uh, living a perfect life without sin, unlike all of us. And, And then he died. The wage of sin is death, but he died even though he was sinless um, and then rose from the dead miraculously. Uh, And when he did that, the reason that's important, most important news in the world, is that that death of a, of a sinless man who was God and who was perfect is the only thing out there that can pay for my sin and pay for your sin and pave the way back to God. Uh, Sometimes people ask, well, if Jesus never sinned, why did he die? And the reason he died was to pay for for your sin, to pay for my sins. Uh, And so all of us who are willing to trust in him and become his people by our faith in him, he says, my death pays for all of your sin. Uh, My resurrection from the dead guarantees for you eternal life forever and I will return if I return after you die I will raise you from the dead and we will share eternity together in life and in joy that's the gospel message and my call to you is uh, if you want the things we're talking about here to apply to you if you want to receive that admission into his people with grace and forgiveness just look to Jesus and ask for him to save you he was powerful to do it He's willing to do it. He even reaches out his hand to you. Just reach and grab him and he will save you. There's the gospel message. Now, this letter is written to a bunch of people who had received that message, right? And what does it say about the life he's called us to now as a church? Well, he says that the best things about our church are all gifts from God. Uh, Let me go through the three gifts that he outlines And I'll tell you before we do that, we're going to spend most of our time, like 75% of our time on the first one. So if we're like 15 minutes later and not to the second point yet, don't get scared. The second two, very short, right? Uh, We'll spend most of our time on the first one, and then we'll talk a little bit about how that applies to us here at Calvary. So three gifts of God that are from him. Uh, First, when someone comes to faith in Christ, it's a gift from God. We see this in three places in this text, the beginning, the middle, and the end. Uh, You can see in verse 4, if you're looking at the text, 
he starts off by giving thanks to God uh, for the gifts that are given through Jesus Christ. Uh, he says in our translation, the grace of God that was given to you. Uh, you'll probably want to know that in Greek, the word for grace and the word for gift are the same word. So it's the gifts that God has given freely to you. And so we know then that the rest of the paragraph is about gifts that God has given freely. Uh, so in verse 6, when he says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, he's saying that that is a gift from God. Uh, so the fact that the testimony of Christ, that's the gospel, the message I just proclaimed to you, uh, took root in Corinth, and a lot of people received the gospel in Corinth, and it took root in their hearts and was confirmed in them. He says, that is a gift. That's not your own doing. That's a gift from God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Uh, he even says this in a way that emphasizes the fact that God did that work and that they didn't. Now, when we are talking about things that people do, uh, you can use active language to emphasize your own actions, or you can use passive language to take the attention off of your actions. H have you ever done this when you need to apologize for something? Uh, you could put all the emphasis on your own actions, which is the right thing to do, right? I did this thing. It was wrong of me to do that thing, and, and I am sorry, right? That's active language. Or if you want to kind of skirt around it and admit it, but not take credit for it, you might say something like, some mistakes were made the other day, right? And, and now you, you've kind of admitted it, but you're not putting the emphasis on your own actions, right? Using passive language to take the emphasis off what you've done. Uh, well, whenever we talk about anything, we can do that. Uh, we can talk that way about our own conversions, right? Uh, now, when you came to Christ, you certainly did a lot, right? You probably listened carefully to a gospel message or read it carefully in the scriptures to make sure you got it. And you made a deliberate choice to trust in Jesus Christ. So you did some things. And you could tell the story in a way that highlights that. You could say, uh, I heard the gospel and I put my faith in Jesus and I was saved, right? That emphasizes what you did. Uh, or you could say, uh, I repented of my sins and I trusted Jesus for salvation. It'd be true if you said that, right? Or because God did so much along the way, you could also tell the story in a way that takes the emphasis off of you and puts it on God. You could say, uh, the Lord saved me when I was 12 years old, right? Now the emphasis isn't on what you did. Uh, you could say, God brought the gospel to me at a summer camp one day. Now the emphasis is on what God did. Those are both true, right? And you can just word it either way, depending on what you're trying to do. Why did I tell you all that? Because Paul very intentionally chooses the second one. He does not say even as you received the gospel and trusted in Christ, he uses passive language. He says, even as the gospel, the testimony about Christ, was confirmed among you. Right? Taking the emphasis off of their actions and putting their eyes on what God did in order to save them. That's because he is trying to emphasize in this paragraph, this is a gift of God. What he is doing among you is a gift. And then... At the end of the paragraph, in the last verse, uh, no, I'm sorry, in, uh, oh, where am I? I need to look again. Verse 9, yeah, okay, verse 9. He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So who is it that called you into fellowship with Jesus? 
It's God who did that, right? So Paul is very interested in emphasizing here that when people come to Christ, God is very active and at work, and he is giving this as a gift to people. So we get the point from that. When someone comes to faith in Christ, it is a gift from God. That helps us because we would have a tendency in our pride, like the Corinthians, to say, uh, well, of course I came to Christ and that other person didn't because I'm better by nature, right? Um, You know, I, I came forward that day. My cousin did not go forward that day. Now I am here in church on a morning when it's negative three degrees and my cousin is in jail, right? Look at the difference between us. It's tempting to think that you're better by nature for the fact that you came forward. And so Paul writes in this way to emphasize, oh, that should not fill you with pride. It should fill you with thankfulness for God's great work in your life to give you a gift that you did not deserve. So every step of the way, If we think back to our conversion stories, those of us that remember our conversion vividly and have come to Christ, you can probably trace how much God was at work in that day. Uh, Just to the very fact that you landed somewhere where the gospel was preached was probably not part of your plan that day. Right? Maybe a few of you were earnestly seeking for the truth and you were looking, you knew something was out there and then you found it in the gospel. But most of us would have to say even hearing the gospel that day was an interruption in our plan for the day. Right? Some of you went to summer camp to play basketball and meet girls and the Lord had the gospel proclaimed there and you came to Christ. Uh, Some of you came to church one day because your parents just brought you there. You weren't waking up in the morning thinking, I really need to hear the gospel. I'm going to go hear the gospel and respond to it. Someone else brought you there. Uh, it, It was a work of God one way or another to bring you to a place where the gospel was proclaimed and to bring the good news to that place so that you could hear it without his work. You never even would have heard the message in the first place. We see that in the conversion stories in the gospel as well. Uh, When most of the people in the gospels, when they come to Jesus, they didn't come intending to follow him, right? The, The men are working their nets in the boat and they're just going about their day. And Jesus comes to them and says, come follow me. And they leave it, right? Great interruption in their plans for the day. And they go and they follow Jesus Christ. Uh, on and on, Matthew at the booth, the, the men that are under the tree, he goes there and he just calls them and they come and follow him. In the book of Acts, uh, there's a woman named Lydia who is converted. Uh, Paul takes the gospel to Europe for the first time. Uh, he's looking around, there's no synagogue, so he goes down by the river where there are some people praying and a woman named Lydia is there. She doesn't have like on the agenda, like we booked this guy named Paul who's going to come preach the gospel to us. He just goes there interrupts their plans for the day, preaches the gospel, and she believes in it. Uh, The Philippian jailer might be my favorite instance of this. He definitely did not wake up that morning and say, well, maybe today I'll be in charge of those apostles that preach that crazy gospel message, and maybe there will be like a massive earthquake in in the prison, and then I'll just fall on my face in front of them, and then I'll ask them to tell me how I can be saved, and then maybe they'll tell me how I could be saved. God just completely interrupted his plans for that day and brought the gospel message to him. 
Almost all of us, we would say that is our story too. A few of us would probably say we were earnestly seeking it. But if you look back in your own story, you can see the hand of God at work in bringing that message to you. That was a gift to you. You did it out of grace and out of love. Not only that, but the fact that you understood the gospel message when you heard it, that also was a gift from God. Uh, Paul says in a few places in the scriptures that, that for us in our natural state, uh, he calls us just blind to the truth, right? We, uh, essentially, he tells us that because of our opposition in heart to the truth of God, we aren't even capable of seeing and understanding this stuff without his help. Uh, he says the, the wisdom of God j- just isn't able to be known by natural man in our natural state, even later in this letter. Uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. Not you can't enter the kingdom. Like you can't even see the kingdom of God without a new heart. Uh, So the Lord has to work in our hearts for us to even grasp what this message means. Because our hearts were so opposed to it that we would reject it before we even get it. A lot of us can trace that in our story too. Uh, Many of you, your story is, I grew up in a church, and every Sunday I heard the gospel, and then one day I was 21, 24, 16, and it just clicked, right? Like I just understood it. Uh, why, Why did you hear the gospel for so many years, and then all of a sudden it just made sense? There's nothing different about that day. Uh, the Lord opened your eyes to understand, opened your mind to receive the good news. So the fact that we were able in our hardened state against him to see this good news, that's a gift from God. And then, even when we understand it, Paul says our natural state is to reject even when we get it, right? He says the, the wisdom of God is, is foolishness to the natural man, right? Foolishness to those who are perishing. Uh, Essentially meaning that in our natural state, in my state 30 years ago, in your state before you came to Christ, what is natural in our hearts, if we're able to hear the gospel and understand it, is to say, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard, right? To reject it like foolishness. Uh, But the Lord says to us, I will give them a new heart, right? I will remove the stony heart from their chest and I will put a heart of flesh in its place. And that is why many of us went from rejecting the news of a God we hated to receiving the good news of a God that we loved. Now this is because at our core, when we are born, there's a reason we all sin. Our hearts are opposed to God. Right? We don't love his ways because we don't love him. And we don't love his message because we don't love him. And in his mercy, he reaches to us and says, I'll give you a new heart. Right? That way you will come to him. I will put my spirit in you that you will love to walk in my ways and you will love me. So from beginning to end, the fact that you landed somewhere where you heard the gospel The fact that your eyes were open to see it and understand a message that we're not wired to understand, although it's intellectually very easy to understand. The fact that we then received a message that our hearts are opposed to and hardened by years of sin. Those are all gifts from God. And so far be it from us to look back on our conversions with any pride in ourselves, right? 
Oh, no, that will fill the heart with thankfulness to a God who reached out to me and found me personally when I was just a massive hypocrite thinking I was superior to everybody else. His grace just broke through that. I never would have turned and come to him if he hadn't done that. That will fill the heart with thankfulness. That's the kind of thankfulness Paul's trying to instill in these Corinthians because of what he's going to say later. Now let me extend that point uh, because closer to his point here, it's also a gift of God when lots of people come to Christ in a church or in a movement. Uh, There have been times throughout history where all of a sudden, boom, tons of people come to Christ. And when he does that, it's a gift to them and it's a gift to us as well because it's so very encouraging when he does that. And yet, at the same time, we would be tempted, if that were to happen, to think, oh man, we're really doing it right now, right? Because now lots of people are coming to Christ. Well, they were seeing that there at Corinth, and so he reminds them, no, those mass conversions, that those are gifts from God to the church. Uh, we see this maybe in the biggest mass conversion story in the Bible, the day of Pentecost. Uh, lots of Jews have gathered from all over the world, and they... Uh, They all speak different languages, so they can't understand each other. And all of a sudden, uh, the Spirit of God is just poured out upon them in in tongues of fire, it says. There's maybe even visible fire. Uh, And all the people can suddenly understand each other, though they speak different languages. Uh, And so you know, like, something supernatural is going on here. Uh, And then Peter gets up to preach, and it says he got up full of the Spirit, right? The Spirit was upon him. And now one of the themes under this is we are also doing things, like he did a thing there. He preached a knockout sermon. I mean, he let it go. And, uh, and then after, after this, he does this full of the Spirit, and then the people, it says, are just cut to the heart, like the Spirit just oh, broke their hearts over their sin. And they cried out and they said, what, what do we do to be saved? He said, repent and believe the gospel, every one of you. And 3,000 people came to Christ. It's incredible. Now, the way that story is told, it's just so obvious it's God that did that, right? He poured his spirit out. He filled Peter with his spirit. When those kind of things happen, that they're gifts from God, we can't engineer that stuff like mad scientists. No, what we do when we want gifts is we go to the giver and we ask Right, And so that is why prayer is so much more important than cleverness when it comes to having a highly effective season of ministry. We just go to the giver and we ask him to pour that out for us. Now, one reason that really matters for us is because we as a church have been praying for a few years now that God would do that here, that he would pour out a revival right here at our church. Uh, Some of you have committed to praying for that every day. I've committed myself to praying for that every day. There are about 35 or so people who committed last year, every day last year, they would ask the Lord to pour out revival. Um, One of the ways you can measure a church, measure a church's health, is to ask, would we be ready if something like that happened? You can ask that institutionally. Could our kids' ministry handle an influx of 50 kids all of a sudden? That's a good question to ask to gauge our health. Uh, Could our ushering system and all of our stuff handle an influx of people like that? Uh, We also need to ask, though, in our hearts, could our hearts handle that kind of success? If, If in God's kindness we baptize 100 people this year, 
What would we do in our hearts? Would we say, hmm, we finally figured it out, right? Let's write a book and tell everybody how to do church right. Or would we just look to God in unmerited grace, just thanking him for doing something we did not deserve? You can measure the health of a church today by asking, are we ready for him to do something like that tomorrow? What's one way we can be ready to fill our hearts with humility and thankfulness for his good work? This point also matters for those of you who are parents or who want to be parents one day. Also for those of you who are praying for your grandkids and your great-grandkids to come to Christ. Uh, Because especially when you're in the parenting phase, you are doing so much that matters for them, right? Whether or not you're faithful to read the Bible together as a family is going to matter. And whether or not you conduct yourself in the right manner is going to matter. And it can start to become tempting to measure the effectiveness of yourself as a parent by whether or not the kids come to Christ, right? Look at that. Oh, we got three out of four. Man, we're doing pretty good, right? And measure your own performance by that. But if instead we remember that anytime anyone comes to Christ, uh, it's a gift from God, uh, that frees us to love our kids faithfully, uh, to do all of the opening the Bible together, teaching them, disciplining them, praying for them, and then just detach our egos from what the Lord does in their lives. Uh, It helps us remember that for all of the things we are doing in their lives, Perhaps the most important is just constantly praying for them. It helps those of you who don't live with your grown kids anymore and don't have as much reach in their lives, and you're thinking, how will I influence them to come to the gospel now? Will you still have just as much power in prayer as you ever had? And it's God's gift when they come to Christ. So double down on your prayers for them. Uh, If I could speak personally to you as a dad about this, one of the lessons he's taught me uh, seeing some of my own kids come to Christ is it never happened when I like suddenly figured out some smart thing to do as a dad. Uh, Every time that's happened in my home and one of the kids has had a work of God in their lives, we were just going about our flawed and faithful routine as a home and as a family and praying for them. And the same thing that didn't do anything yesterday and didn't do anything the day before and didn't do anything the day before that, all of a sudden just took root in their heart. Uh, that's how the Lord does it, because when they come, it, it's a gift from God. So go to God with dependence on him for the sake of your kids, for the sake of your grandkids. Uh, it's a gift, and he loves to give those gifts. There's point one. When someone comes to Christ, it's a gift from God. Second, when God fills your church with talented people, that too is a gift. We see this in verse 5 and in verse 7. It's interrupted by verse 6. Our translation has dashes there around verse 6 to show that. Okay, so what are some of these gifts Paul's talking about? In verse 5, he says, That in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. That means there were a lot of people, like they were rich with people, who were really good speakers and were really smart, right? Wouldn't that be awesome, right? That's what they have. And then in verse 7, So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he will later talk about spiritual gifts and how God gifts different people for different works. He is saying here, you guys are just flush with gifted people. Like you're not lacking anything. Uh, Imagine that at at our church. Could you imagine if we had 
two dozen Sunday school teachers who really knew their stuff and were incredible speakers. Uh, If we had a rotation of six people, six preachers, who really knew their stuff and were incredible speakers. And when it came to every slot in the nursery, everything we need done on the soundboard, all the deacons, all the jobs that we do, we've got a bench that's twice as deep as what we need for people to actually do it because we're just flush with gifted people. That's what the Corinthian church had. They weren't lacking any gift. They were enriched in every way, especially with good speakers and with knowledgeable people. Now, you get that kind of talent around you, and can you see the temptation to fall to pride? Man, we are really good at stuff, right? And immediately, we can start to put our confidence in ourselves and forget that those abilities and those gifts, well, they come from God. And so Paul is saying to them, that too is a gift from God that I give thanks for. He gave you those talented people. So our second point then is that when God fills your church with talented people, that too is a gift. We see this happen over and over in the scriptures. God gives his people talented people to help. And inevitably we wind up putting our confidence in those talented people instead of in God. One of the really pointed examples of this is is Moses. Uh, The Lord equips Moses to go to Pharaoh, lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, He has him raise his hands and the Red Sea is parted and they go through the Red Sea as on dry land and they make it over to the other side. And then when they're over to the other side, uh, Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law from God and he's up there for a while. And so the people are without Moses and they're like, oh no, we're without our God. We better make an idol because they had their trust in Moses. Moses, who led us out of Egypt, they say, is gone. We need someone else to worship now. Let's make an idol. So they're showing that their confidence had come to be in Moses and not not in the Lord. Uh, The Lord gives people throughout the Old Testament. These two men, Bezalel and Aholiab, are given by the Spirit the power of great craftsmanship to make decorations for the tabernacle and for the temple. But eventually, the people's confidence by the end of Israel's story is in that physical structure that those gifted men built and not in the connection with the God that they have. Uh, Saul, one of their kings for a while, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him and he was able to fight valiantly and win mighty battles. And before long, his confidence is in his physical strength and not in his God who is equipping them. I mean, over and over again, the Lord gives us talented people and we trust in ourselves and our talented people and not in him. And so he reminds us here that when you're flush with gifted people, that too is a gift from God. That can help us when we look at other churches and, you know, they say comparison is the thief of joy sometimes, right? You look at how, maybe you visit another church on vacation and most of us, I think our eyes wind up fixed on either what that church does better than our church or what that church does worse than our church, like one of the other, depending on our personality. Uh, some of you might go on vacation, visit another church, uh, and, and just look around and say, oh man, I'm so glad we do that. I'm so glad our nursery is better than that. Whew, you know, right, man, our music's so much better than that. So glad. We still have a choir, man, that church does it. Like, so glad, right? And we can begin to feel superior to another church who doesn't do things like we do. It doesn't have a full choir. We had almost as many people in the choir as we did out here today, right, to start to feel pride about that. Uh, 
Or maybe your pride ex- expresses itself more with insecurity than, than with superiority. And so it's just as easy to visit another church and say, oh man, we could never run our kids' ministry like that. Like, oh, why can't our music be like that? Why can't our preaching be like that? Uh, it's the same sense of wanting to be strong in ourselves, in our own power, over and above other churches. When, if we will ask the Lord, will you give us all of the talent we need? And if we will remember that it's him who gives us every talented person we have, well, then every little bit we get, we just thank God for. And no longer do we have to attach our own egos to how talented our church is. Oh, what a better place to be. This also matters for those of you who are stepping into leadership positions. I said earlier, uh, we've got some young people we've been working with for a while to try to develop and get them ready for leadership. One of them just uh, led Operation Christmas Child recently. Some more are going to be working in the kids' ministry and moving around. There's some other ones you don't know about yet because they aren't totally sure yet. Uh, For all of you who are stepping into work like this, uh, now is the time to detach your self-image, your ego, from how good you are at whatever you're about to step into. Uh, I know what it feels like to be about to do something new, right? Am I any good at this or not? We're about to find out, right? It's a little nerve-wracking. And what a freer place if you can say, every ability I do have, whatever it is, is a gift from God and isn't innate in me in the first place. And so I'll just thank him for however well I do and not be down on myself when I fail. And I'll just let the Lord work through me. That frees you up to do your work out of love for others and out of love for the church instead of to affirm your own sense of needing to be validated by the work. And what a better place to be. So those of you stepping into places, uh, just go ahead and detach how good you are from any sense of self-image. It also matters for us as we pray that the Lord would give us more laborers for the harvest. Uh, There's a lot of work to be done here. We are constantly looking for more people to do this and to do that. There seems to be this deep dependence, right? Let's put that dependence on God, right? The, The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And so what do we do? Pray earnestly that the Lord will send out laborers into the harvest. We need gifted people. We we have some, we need more. And so let's ask the Lord for that. So there's our second point. When God fills your church with talented people, it's a gift. Third and last, God promises to guard your faith until Jesus returns. God promises to guard your faith until Jesus returns. Now, those first two happen more and less in different churches, but this one is a promise made to every Christian. Every Christian, if you have an earnest faith in Jesus Christ right now, Jesus himself has promised you that he will not let you go. He will keep you all the way to the end of your life, and then he will keep you in heaven until he comes back so that when he returns, he will raise you from the dead guiltless in Christ Jesus. You don't need to be scared about how this thing ends if your faith is in Jesus. We see that in verses 8 and 9. He has just invoked the name of Jesus Christ at the end of verse 7 there, and he says, Who will sustain you until the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? And then interestingly, he starts off verse 9 with the word God is faithful. The words God is faithful. So, kind of two points there, very related. He is going to sustain you to the end. 
and he's faithful. Interestingly, almost any time Paul talks about this idea, which we call perseverance of the saints, uh, almost any time he talks about it, he uses that word faithful somewhere in the sentence, as if to invoke the fact that this is going to happen, you're going to make it to the end because of Jesus' faithfulness. Uh, As if to say that if he let you go, he would be unfaithful. Uh, Why is that? Uh, Well, that's because Jesus himself promises no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? Uh, Jesus himself promises, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. All right? So the Father's charge to Jesus Christ for every Christian is, I have given them to you. Guard them and keep them safe until you come back and then raise them from the dead, guiltless before you and before me. And the son's promise in turn to you, if you're a Christian, is my father has given you to me. I will guard you. I will keep you safe all the way to the end. And when I come back, I will raise you from the dead, guiltless before me. So that's his promise to you. That's why when Paul starts talking about it, he uses the word faithful. Uh, He says in another text, the Lord is faithful and he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Why is he faithful? Because Jesus promised he would do that. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He will surely do it. Right? Invoking again that same promise. Uh, So Jesus promises he's going to keep every Christian all the way to the end, and Paul leans on that and says he is going to be faithful to do it. Uh, That is the Christian teaching of the perseverance of the saints. All those who earnestly trust Jesus today, he will keep them all the way to the end. You may go astray, he will bring you back. You may be steady Eddie the whole way, that's by his power. He is the one guarding us and keeping us. We sing this in one of my favorite hymns toward the end. We say, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So we're prone to wonder away, right? But then, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. When we invoke that promise, he says, I'll do that. I'll seal you. I'll keep you all the way to the end. So God promises to guard your faith until the end. That means whatever you've been through, let's go look at our Christian lives again. We left off at your conversion earlier. Since then, What are those ups and downs you've been through? Some of you have been walking with Jesus for 60, 70 years. Lots of ups, lots of downs. Some of you, it's been two months, and there's been lots of ups. There's been lots of downs. And many of you, like me, can look back on an experience or two and say, how did I make it through that with my faith intact? Like, who who keeps their faith through that? What happened? Uh, Well, what happened is the Lord was there, and he guarded you, and he kept you. And if you can say that about something in the past, you can say that about whatever's coming next as well. Whatever comes, be it a high, be it a low, he says, I'm going to keep you. The scriptures say, Lord, give me neither riches nor poverty, lest if I grow wealthy, I'll grow prideful and I'll forget about you. If I grow poor, I might steal and I might profane your name. Like really good times and really bad times both come with intense temptations. Whether it's a high time of intense temptation or a low time of intense temptation, the Lord says, 
no one snatches them out of my hand. I will guard you. I will keep you to the end. This too is a gift. That means something when we look at our church's faithfulness as well. Um, I thank God that as many churches have fallen away from teaching the scriptures uh, into what I called last week ethical heresy when it comes to teachings on immorality, uh, any number of things as well, taking their anchor away from the word of God. Uh, Here in this church, uh, I didn't have to steer us back to the scriptures when I got here. We we were here, right? The Lord kept this church faithful. Uh, it is very easy, though, to put pride in that, right? to feel a sense of superiority. Those other churches are falling away, but not us, right? We're faithful. We're grounded, right? Uh, but the Lord says, no, that faithfulness is, is a gift from me. It's, it was his work preserving each one of you before I came, preserving me now that I'm here. It is him who has kept us faithful, and so we look to him with deep thankfulness. So, Can you see what I mean when I say that pride is the opposite of Christianity, right? If we are going to say that every step of the way, he did the work, what is there left to take pride in? Your abilities? That's God working in you. The, the, The epiphany you had to come to Christ, God working in you. Your faithfulness all the way to you, that was God working in you. And so what we must do as Christians and as a church is hunt down every last speck of pride in our hearts and just crush it. Just say, that that was a work of the Lord, and my heart is filled with thankfulness for him. The best things about you as a person and the best things about this church are gifts from God. And so let's walk out of here encouraged at what our Lord has done trusting in him and full of thankfulness for him. Let's pray together.